This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Say her name, Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor's killing has, uh, and the decision of the grand jury not to indict uh, the police officers for her death has launched yet another round of protests, of demonstrations, of uh, chants, of mantras, of hashtags, of desperate pleas for change, desperate pleas for systemic change, policy change, rule changes, regardless of whether or not we uh, agree on uh, the law and whether the law protects uh, those who uh, committed this killing or whether the law failed to protect Breonna Taylor, the one thing that folks can agree on is that there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong with the policies that are in place. There's something wrong with those that are in power and the ways in which they use or abuse or refuse to care for those who feel unprotected. People are overwhelmingly tired. As the family of Breonna Taylor mourns her loss on a very personal level, people all over the country, all over the world, are mourning not only Brianna's loss, but the loss of so many others who have died in similar situations, died, uh, lost their lives at the hands of those who have uh, the legally defended power to kill. The legally defended power to take the lives of those who, uh, in many respects, are not even a threat. So folks are not just mourning the loss of a person, They're mourning uh, the legal process that gives the power and the defense to kill people, and in this case, especially black people. It's not lost on anyone that we're in the midst of yet another uh, election season, another political season, tensions rising high on either side of the political aisle. With the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, people are posturing for power yet again. And it really doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. There is this desire, this lust for power, either to attain the power or to maintain the power. And the people who tend to suffer most are those who are the most underrepresented. Why do these things matter? Why should we care so much? Well, because for for the majority of, of recorded history, people have always loved power more than people. Hear that again. Throughout human history, people have loved power more than people. The ability to attain that power matters more than the people. The ability to maintain that power matters more than the people. And so uh, people are tools to use in order to maintain power. People, is, people so often are not nearly as important. People see, uh, they want to see reforms in the criminal justice system because they see a misuse of power. 
But the sad part is that when people want to see a change, systemic changes within power, you do realize that there's never been a change in power because the powers that be decided it's time to change. There's never been a, 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 an, an empire in the history of the world that just said, hey, we've done some evaluation on ourselves and we realize just how abusive we've been with our power. So we've just self-governed in such a way that we've determined we need to uh, cede some more power to those who don't have it. That's never been the case. Every single instance of people who feel underrepresented or not cared for, they have had to argue, fight, even lose their lives in order to get some sense of power so that they can feel like they're getting equal protection, equal provision, equal punishment, which is how we define justice. And so this, this picture that we're seeing right now, this, ver this, this reality in which we're living right now, this is not just uh, a matter of the people who have the wrong ideas versus the people who have the right ideas or uh, the people who sometimes will cast it as the ones who love Jesus are the ones who only care about this issue and if people don't care about this issue, they must not love Jesus. Jesus gets used to be able to get power, maintain and attain power in the same way. This is, we, we have to get to a place, and hopefully as we dig into this text, we're going to see that uh, sometimes people are afraid, those in power are afraid to, to give up or to make changes because it feels like it's ceding power, it's conceding power. So to concede on some of those issues is to give up political power, which is far more important than equitable justice. So the politicians we elect. They're the ones who promise to give us the most power. Politicians are often working not for the people, but for the re-election. And they need the people in order to be re-elected. There is a power that the people hold with which they can pressure politicians into certain decisions. There's also a power that politicians hold that can put pressure on the people. So here's the, here's the issue. You've got one group that's like, hey, we've got this power, but we need the people to get the power. You've got these people who are going, we, we, we need those politicians in order to get the power. So you've got two groups that ultimately the most important thing for them is power. The most important value to them is power. So when neither of these groups are driven ultimately by truth and driven by the heart of Jesus, Injustice is certain to ensue. We have to be a people that says, whether I'm Republican or Democrat, what is the heart of Jesus? Which means I have to ask the question, is there some degree of power that I'm wanting to hold on to? Is there some degree of power that those in power are using me in order to get? Where does power play? We cannot talk about issues. We cannot talk about people. We cannot talk about how to love our neighbor if we don't ask the question, where does power lie? How is power used? If power is used in order to love people well, that's one thing. If power is used just to obtain and keep that power, that's another. And our text today conveys this very point. As we read through Jesus's interaction with uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, you're going to notice two groups here who are hoping to attain or maintain power. You've got Pilate, you've got the people, specifically the religious leaders. And in both cases, they, they're doing what we do. 
use Jesus in order to obtain or keep power. What we're called to do is to use and really follow Jesus in order to love people instead of using Jesus in order to get power from people or to use power over people. So as we read this text, I want you to think through, see if you can identify areas in which you see both groups or situations in which both groups are trying to use Jesus in order to get power. It's never about Jesus. It's never about the people. It's never about caring for the people Jesus cared for. It's always about what do I have to do in order to either get rid of Jesus so that I can have the power I want or so that I can appropriate Jesus in order to have the power that I want. Either way, power is the goal, not the heart of Jesus. So as we read through John 18, verses 28 through 38, really be thinking through what, where is power here? What is the real uh, desire of the, the hearts of the people who are in this story? What is it that they're hoping for more? And then ask yourself, what are you hoping for most, even in this election season? What are you hoping for most in this? John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They didn't enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus's words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So you're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king. Jesus replied, I was born for this, and I've come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Said Pilate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We find ourselves in this story, this part of the narrative, we, we, we've already walked back through kind of what Jen had preached through last week and what it was like when Jesus was before Caiaphas. And you're seeing these events unfold. You're seeing what's happening toward the end of the ministry of Jesus. And ultimately what we see is that the Jewish leaders who are in power at the time, these Jew, or the power specifically in Judea, they are wanting to hold on to this power. We've been talking about this for months. The things that Jesus has been saying the declarations that he has been making, the demonstrations that he has been showing. Overwhelmingly, he's showing a power that these religious leaders don't have. And they feel threatened because their power is on the line. And so they're figuring out, what do we need to do? How do we arrest power back? How do we make sure that people don't think power lies with this rebellious man and not with our authority? And now they're in a hurry, right? Because Passover is coming. So interesting when you can see people who love to act like they love God. And so the ceremonies matter, right? But the people don't. 
And so they're so, hey, we've got Passover, so we've got to make sure that we get this business handled first. How interesting is it that we can crush people on our way to go worship? We can be in a situation where uh, people can be mourning, hurting, injustice everywhere, and we just sing loud on Sunday. That's, that's us. When we see this, before we even go deeper, when we see this part of the story, and we see these folks going, Passover's coming, worship is coming, Sunday is coming, we got to get ready for service, but on the way, let's figure out how we can crush that person because we really, really want to keep our power. Y'all, if you don't see that this is what the church looks like so often, we're not paying attention. These Jews were in a hurry. They have to dispense with all the legal formalities as quickly as possible so that they can have this whole horrible thing finished by sunset so that they can worship God at the Passover. They've been up all night dealing with this Jesus issue. They've been preparing for this moment. And now they're demanding to see Pilate. But they also refuse to defile themselves, as the scripture says. It's so interesting, again, that we can be so focused on these performative aspects. I want to look like I worship, even though my heart has no degree of worship in it. I want to look like I know how to serve God and praise God and sing for God and pray to God and recite things about God, while my very actions, my very conduct, my omission to love people well proves that I'm not about worship in my life. Because worship is a lifestyle, right? We love to say that. And ultimately, sadly, amongst evangelicals, what we mean is like, it's a lifestyle. How much do you pray? How much do you memorize scripture? How much good theology do you know? How often do you bring those things up in your small groups? How do you hold each other accountable? All those kinds of things. And yet, the question never comes up, how do you radically love your neighbor? Because that's real worship. And these folks, they were off to go worship. They'd rather perform worship than live a life of it. And so they've got to hurry up and get this done. We have to figure out how to kill Jesus so we can go worship. If you don't see just the tension that's there, the dissonance that should be there, where's the dissonance in our own hearts? So here they are. They've been up all night. They're demanding to see Jesus. They don't want to defile themselves. So they don't want to go into the abode of this Gentile pagan because he wasn't uh, a Jew and he wasn't righteous. And so they're like, hey, come out here. We've got a bone to pick. We have an issue. We need you to resolve it so that we can go worship. And so uh, we see this. If you look again in uh, verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That would be Pilate. It was early morning. They didn't go into the headquarters themselves. They didn't want to be defiled. Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Now, this is very telling because uh, ultimately uh, these, these, these Jewish leaders, they've been asked a question. Pilate is a representative of the Roman government. Pilate realizes I need to have a real charge. I need to know that you have a legal claim here because that's my job. My job is to enforce the laws of the land. So give me a law that he's broken and then I'll know what to do. They realize that Jesus hasn't broken any laws. They realize that there's really, think about this. If there's a person in power and they're like, we've got to figure out how to game the system so that we can get power, what do we need to do? Well, we know we don't have the charges here. So what else, what's the other angle that we can take? They're, they can't articulate any charges that would, uh, that would actually make them worthy of the death penalty. So instead, they have to come up with this pious-sounding version of, 
Trust me, he did something bad. That's ultimately all they say here. Hey, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't be here before you. You realize that's not a real argument, right? That's not a real claim. Hey, would we be before you if we weren't, uh, you know, if there wasn't something serious? Trust us, Pilate. He's worth the death penalty. That's ultimately what they say here. He's asking, what did he do? What, 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 what is the reason why he should be killed right now? Listen, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate said, you take him. Judge him according to your law. We'll talk in a minute why they were able to do that. But uh, they, he's basically saying, listen, this is not a Roman issue. This is a squabble, an intramural squabble amongst you Jews, right? We remember that when the Roman Empire came and took over the known world, everyone else paid fealty to the Romans. And after many, many wars and wars and wars and wars, eventually an agreement was made so that the Jewish community was able to function in their own accord. They could function and create their own courts, their own laws, a kangaroo court of sorts, not really recognized by the rest of the Roman government. But the Roman government is like, as long as you all pay taxes, as long as you all obey our, our laws, we'll allow you to have your own kind of monotheistic view of God. Nobody else in the, in the Roman world was really even allowed to do that, but the Jews at that time were. So they had a degree of power. And so he's, he's uh, uh, Pilate is looking at this and going, how do I handle this? In a minute, we'll see the things that Pilate had to deal with being a part of the Roman government, the reputation he had, and also his desire to maintain some degree of, of working relationship with the, the Jewish community. He's angry, undoubtedly. Because here we have this Jewish community disturbing and even insulting him as they've done. And he's like, this is not my matter. This is your matter. And how do they respond? They said, well, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, they declared. In other words, we want him dead. And we don't really, we can't find a claim in the Roman law to have him killed. But we want him killed. And he's just staring like, what a... What do I do with this, right? I mean, here's what we have to know. In most cases, why wouldn't Pilate just go, you don't have a claim, get out of my face. I'm a part of the Roman government. We could squash you if we want to. It's been a hard road. We've decided it's not worth the manpower and the, and the loss if we continue these wars that we've had in the past. So we've tried to make concessions for you all, but I'm not getting ready to kill a man that has nothing to do with the Roman law. I'm not gonna do it. Why didn't he just do that? Well. Pilate was on thin ice with Rome. And at that moment, he feels the pressure to have to resolve this crisis in a way that doesn't anger the Jews. And so he doesn't give them exactly what they demand right away because he's trying to find a way to keep both parties happy. So it might be helpful for us to be reminded of this whole political situation at this point in time. For those who, if you don't know, Politics are almost always at play in every scenario we, we see. Any story we read in scripture, we have to know, how are the landlords governing the landless? How are the powerful governing the powerless? Jesus, more often than not, calls out the powerful while protecting the powerless and tells us to do the same. So when you read scripture... Those are the questions that should be in your mind. I know there are those that take issue with even this approach, but if you love people and you understand the sin nature of people, then you know those with power will always sinfully fight and hold on and dare you to take power from them from their cold, vice grip, dead hands. If you understand sin the way you claim you do, 
then don't be shocked when we ask, where does power lie? How, how likely is it that power would be abused? Well, if you have a high view of sin, it's very likely. So understanding the political background here is vitally important. You won't really understand what's happening. So you've got uh, Rome as this dominant power in the world. And uh, you've got uh, this, uh, all of the known uh, world that's governed by Rome now. It's separated into territories and provinces, and they have administration set up to, to govern all of those areas. So Syria was one of these Roman provinces, and part of Syria was Palestine. What we know is Palestine, Israel today. Palestine was a part of Syria. And Palestine had to be governed. Now, these, Palestine was separated into about five parts. The person who ruled over all five of those parts was a man by the name of Herod the Great. When Herod died, all of the territory was divided amongst his three sons. Those three sons would govern the five areas. Well, one of those sons, Archelaus, he ended up having a lot of abusive ways that he governed the people, a lot of misrule. He governed Judea and Samaria. And so because of that area and because of the complaints and because of the people constantly coming after and constantly complaining and having tons of wars and lots of discord, that particular Herod Archelaus, Archelaus he was removed from power. He was removed from his position and he was replaced with someone known as the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate has just replaced someone who had already been deposed. He's just replaced someone who had lost their power. So you know Pilate is thinking, I'm not losing my power. I'm not going out the way that he went out. Because again, here he is, in theory, a public servant. But really, he's serving himself. How do I serve myself? By using you to, have, to, to, to attain the power so that I can remain in power. That's where he is. Here is this man who has been appointed. He's not even been elected. He's been appointed right, by, uh, by the emperor to be one of these leaders. And so he's been appointed there, and he wants to hold on to that power. And so he ends up being the governor of Judea even during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, we know that uh, from Luke, Luke also gives this account. John gives us the most descriptive account of all the Gospels, but Luke gives us an account in chapter 23 that Herod and Pilate had been adversaries all up until the trial of Jesus. Then they became friends. It's interesting, again, how folks can be political enemies until they can agree on how to use power to maintain it. So for them, they're like, we don't agree and we have main big issues. But if you notice this, even political opponents, even within the same party, you've seen this in elections time and time again. One person can say, this person, I disagree with everything that they're saying. This person has no real moral character. This person is a bigot, a racist, a xenophobe. And then after an election, this person is the true answer and who God has put in place. And I can't, I can't agree. I can't even imagine a greater leader than this one right now. How does that change so quickly? Because maintaining power is even more important than whatever principles you claim to hold. Whatever principles you claim to cling to. This is what power does desire for power, you will start to eradicate any sense of integrity. So here we are, Rome has chosen to give their provinces some degree of, of freedom, some degree of uh, autonomy to a degree, as long as they were submissive, as long as they were cooperative. So again, this meant that the Jews were allowed to govern themselves. 
They could make and enforce laws. They could try and uh, punish lawbreakers. And Rome could intervene, but rarely did so, with one exception. Anytime there is a case involving, uh, involving capital punishment, anytime there is a, a chance that the Jewish community could or would want someone to actually be put to death, that's when Rome would intervene for any people group that would want to do that. They could not, they would not allow just the wanton kind of reckless uh, approaches of, we think this person deserves to die, we'll put them to death. Rome would always intervene in such cases. And so the Jewish community knew that. And so this is where the political tension starts to rise, right? Because you've got all these Jewish people that are there during that time. There's a lot of pressure on Pilate. Why are they there? Because it's Passover. People have come from far and wide. Jewish nations from all over the known world are there and are represented. And there, there's a lot of religious fervor, right? There's this heavy, uh, uh, thick expectancy in the air. People have messianic uh, visions and expectations and enthusiasm. And with enthusiasm, right, and with fervor, can come the, the, the chance of some kind of uprising, and the one thing the Romans did not want is another uprising because they've had several already. That's why there's a sizable force of Roman soldiers that were stationed in Jerusalem at that time. So because of that season, because of the tension that had been already in place, because of the, the, the fear of real uprisings happening, these political tensions between the Jews and the Romans, Pilate has to bear the burden. He has to bear the responsibility for dealing with the Jews and for ultimately determining the fate, determining the fate of Jesus. Interestingly, uh, up until 1961, nobody even really believed that Pontius Pilate was a real person. For the longest time, people thought that he was maybe just a figment of someone's imagination, a figment of the gospel writer's imagination, and that he ultimately was created to advance certain thoughts and certain ways of, of, of thinking about Jews and thinking about Jesus. And then in 1961, some Italian archaeologists uh, came upon the ruins of an old ancient Israeli theater, Palestinian theater. And as they were digging up, they found some of these, uh, I've actually been there and seen this, and it's incredible, these, uh, they, they found these inscriptions mentioning Pontius Pilate. And people were really surprised. Because they thought, wow, we weren't sure. We had heard the stories. People had written certain things, but we weren't sure if this was more myth versus actual reality. So when they unearthed a few stones that had his partial inscription with his name on it and him uh, presenting uh, this idea of Tiberium, the, the, the actual area that had been named for the old emperor Tiberius. And there's his name there. Now, if you read the New Testament, we're familiar with uh, Pilate. We know that he's not portrayed in a very favorable light. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that Pilate was governor when John the Baptist started his ministry. Later in Luke, we read about Pilate's blasphemous treatment of the Galileans. Remember in Luke it said, now there were some present on the occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So he had intentionally done some really heinous things, probably trying to show just how uh, powerful and how authoritative he could be, maybe to impress the Romans to say, hey, I know how to keep people in line. They knew him as this horrible, wicked, blasphemous man. So what we know about him isn't very flattering. 
He made a lot of major mistakes. And that sets the scene for what we're seeing in our text. Normally, when governors uh, would arrive in, in Jerusalem, they would remove what's called a standard, right? It was this pole uh, with a Roman eagle, of it, and, and the Roman eagle had an image of the emperor on the end of it, right? And, and it was on the very top. You saw this kind of image of the emperor there. Now, for Jews, they knew we don't worship any graven images. And so they would always take issue when the Romans would come through with their standard. So a good, conscientious uh, Roman leader would say, hey, when we go in there, <clears throat> we're not going to do this. You know, in, in, in kind of a funny turn of phrase, they really did follow the win in Rome, right? And this time it was like, win in Jerusalem, do as the Jews do. We're not going to show these graven images. That was just what a wise, winsome type of leader, that's how they would function. But he, he apparently didn't do that. Despite the Jews' disdain for those kinds of images, uh, in spite of the awareness of these Jewish scruples and past Roman best practices, Pilate's troops marched into Jerusalem carrying medallions with the emperor's image or his bust right on their flagpoles, right on their standards. This started a major protest demonstration by the Jews that lasted, historians tell us, about five days. And eventually, Pilate was forced to give in to public pressure by removing the standards. So his, his reputation is either looking weak to the Romans, right? or looking incredibly vile to the Jews. He cares about what people think because he needs to maintain his power. Then you had a second event. This incident occurred when Pilate constructed an aqueduct. It's incredible to see. This aqueduct that was meant to, to get water from cisterns that were near Bethlehem all the way to Jerusalem. That also provoked a riot. And it wasn't because of the aqueduct itself, but because Pilate had funded the project with funds that he took from the temple. He's, so again, he's like, how do I even use these people to impress those that are above me? How do I impress the emperor? Hey, look at this incredible thing I created. Who did you crush to get it? Doesn't matter. That's typically how people who lust for power work. And so he had done this. He had taken money from the temple to create this incredible engineering marvel. No one had ever seen that kind of situation where you could create a form of running water going into this part of the area. And so guess what happened? They rioted. The Romans had to put down the riot. Pilate warned them not to use their swords, but his instructions weren't carried out properly and there was bloodshed. So what's happening? Similar things that probably happened under Herod Archelaus. He's starting to look like a leader that might need to be replaced. He's starting to look like a leader that might lose his power. People do not want to lose their power and they will fight, beg, borrow, steal, and kill in order to maintain it. And so Pilate, his actions, they were looked at as evil, looked at as foolish, but it could not prevent the riot. It could not prevent bloodshed. And it was another black eye for Pilate's administration. Now we come to the straw that kind of broke the proverbial camel's back. This happened when Pilate set up several golden shields at his headquarters in Jerusalem. So here he is in the area where the Jews are, and he sets up these shields around his uh, residence. And these shields, they didn't have images, but they had an inscription of a dedication to Tiberius, the old emperor, Roman emperor. The people protested strongly. They were backed up by Herod Antipas and his brothers. This time, Pilate refused to back down. 
In other places like Alexandria, uh, the shields were tolerated by the Jews. They put up with it. But this was Jerusalem. This was a golden opportunity for Herod to make Pilate look bad to the Roman emperor. Apparently, Herod had written a letter of official protest to the emperor, who then ordered Pilate to, say, to have the shields sent to Caesarea, warning him about offending the Jews by violating their customs. So Pilate is having a really bad career because his leaders are saying, you don't seem like you're the kind of leader we need in place. The Jews are going, you're not the kind of leader that we really want to follow or obey. We're going to keep rioting. We're going to keep protesting. We're going to keep making you know how unhappy we are. All of this to say, Pilate was not very popular with the Jews at this point. And he probably wasn't popular with the Romans at this point. He probably wanted to save his own career. He probably wanted to save himself. This is where we find ourselves. This is not new. This shouldn't be foreign. We should see this whenever we look at our own political history. You see, when you're not driven by something that, that is greater than power for you, if you don't have something that is more important than power, you will be the kind of leader or the kind of follower that just uses people, that abuses people, that overlooks people, but in no way will you be a person that loves people. Further, there's no way that you can pursue Jesus and have this kind of mindset. Because ultimately, either you're pursuing Jesus, which means you pursue and care for people, or you persecute Jesus, which means you persecute other people. You're only one or the other. And yes, you can tell yourself that you're following Jesus and be persecuting people. You've just, again, like we've said before, you've remade Jesus into something else. And we're going to talk about that more next week when we look at uh, Barabbas, right? But here you've got this, this situation where Pilate, this is the background we see for Pilate. Pilate is in a very politically tense situation. He's got to hold on to his position. He can't be deposed like the last guy. He's got to figure out how to use the people to maintain power, much like politicians do today. And there's so much more said here. I'm not going to go through that here. One of the things we are going to see is look at how Jesus ends this part of the conversation with Barabbas. When, I mean, not with Barabbas, with Pilate. When Pilate is saying, listen, they're saying that you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus is going, you said that. Do you believe I'm a king? And he's going back and forth. I'm not Jewish. Why would you ask me that? All these things that are happening. So much to be said there. We're not going to do that here. But eventually, as Jesus is walking through this conversation and he's trying to get Pilate thinking, Luke tells us that Pilate's wife had already had a vision, a dream about how, she should be, how he should be interacting with Jesus. Who knows everything that's happening in Pilate's mind? But eventually, when Jesus says in 37, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this and I've come into this world for this to testify to the truth. Jesus says, this is what I was born for. I was born to testify, to proclaim, to demonstrate the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So everyone who sees the world the way that I've told you the world functions, everyone who sees themselves the way I've told you uh, the way that people function, everywhere that, everywhere that people see God the way I have shared and displayed him to you, they're the ones who listen to my voice. And Pilate's response, what is truth. Many times people will go to this part of the text and be very accurate in talking about why this matters, why we need to have a belief in objective, absolute truth. 
And there's no question. I believe, and I think the scriptures show us, there are things that are true, absolutely. There are things that are true regardless of how, you, how we feel. There are things that are true regardless of what we experience. There are things that are true regardless of what people who we trust do or say or don't do or don't say. There are no question that there are things that are absolutely true. But we can't just look at absolute truth in a vacuum. Truth impacts others. Truth impacts our world. We can't possibly understand truth if we don't understand the lay of the land, if we don't understand the power differentials, if we don't understand what's at play here. So, so we've got the context here and Jesus says, what is truth? Now, I mean, not Jesus, Pilate says, what is truth? Why does Pilate say what is truth? Because Pilate functions the way most people who lust for power function. I don't really care what's, at, what's true absolutely. I just need to know what's true for me in order for me to maintain power. So if what was true four years ago worked for me, but that won't work for me now, then I'm gonna use a different line of reasoning now. We've seen that uh, amongst politicians for, for decades, for centuries. You could have a politician that says, hey, this process, this policy is the way things should work. But the moment there's a threat, that they might not have power any longer. Then they'll say, this process isn't what we should do. Why? Because process doesn't really matter as much. Power matters. Process only matters to the degree that power can be maintained. So, so when you're looking at what, what, what Pilate is wrestling with, he's going, truth, nobody who's in power really functions with truth. No one who's in power functions with things that are objectively true. People who are in power work with what is objectively expedient. What will allow me to maintain? What will allow me to attain? What is truth? So ultimately, and this is something we need to know about our leaders and ourselves, anytime we fail to hold to the idea of an objective, absolute truth, and especially if we're political leaders, there's only one standard by which our actions can be measured political expediency and maintenance of power. That's where Pilate finds himself. The sad thing is the kinds of leaders we want are typically leaders like Pilate. We want leaders that are gonna guarantee us that we'll be able to have some degree of power, that we can attain it or maintain it. We want leaders that are gonna make these bargains with us. The things that we think are true, we will set truth to the side in order for things to be worked out in our favor. There was a quote that, that came up uh, a few years ago. I think it was from Dr. Ben Carson where he said, uh, he said, uh, sometimes we have to put our Christian values on pause so that we can get work done. You see, for the Christian mind and for the Christian heart, the follower of Jesus, that isn't how we function. And there are people on both sides of the aisle that think that way. I think I'm just picking on uh, Ben Carson. But ultimately, that kind of mentality is dangerous, is toxic, and it's a guarantee that people will be hurt that people will suffer injustice because we ultimately say to ourselves, sometimes, yes, it's really bad when innocent people die. Yes, it's really bad when someone like Breonna Taylor could be sleeping in her apartment, hear a noise, try to figure out what's going on. All the details are fuzzy right now. We're hearing different things coming up, but ultimately somebody who is innocently in their home should not suffer death. Further, there should be some degree of justice there. But in order to be able to bring justice, certain changes have to happen that might seed power. And people in power say, we can't have that. Why is power more important 
than people. For Pilate, why was power more important than people? Why was power more important than the most important person in the history of the world? Why was power more important than God himself? You see, that's the question we have to ask ourselves every day. What, how valuable is power to me? How much does the pain of someone else who's suffering, being crushed by the powers that be, how important is their suffering to me so that I say something has to change about the power, not just something has to change about the people? This is where uh, the truth of our sin is on display because when we see the people in the story, the Jewish leaders, they just want to use Jesus to get their own power. Pilate wants to use Jesus to get his own power. Ultimately, loving God isn't the important thing. Loving power is. So this is where I'm closing. This is where the charge is for us as we lead into next week. Our charge is this. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to pursue Jesus? What does it mean to pursue his name? So that whenever the names of people who are crushed under uh, uh, abuse of power, disproportionate justice, what does it mean so that we can actually remember their names? And listen, when we say, say their name, we're not just saying, remember these five syllables, it'll do you some good. We're saying, remember the faulty systems and structures that made it possible for the lives of these people, like Breonna Taylor, to be snuffed out. Remember what it means when people in power on either side of the political aisle care more about protecting their people or protecting their power than protecting their people. What does it mean for people, citizens, to genuinely care so much that they say, I love God and I love others and that is what really matters. You see, here's what happens when we love political power more than people. When Christians love political power more than people, they don't sacrificially help and empower others. They blame them for being security risks, illegal, a drain on the economy. When Christians love political power more than people, these people who claim to follow Jesus rationalize deporting people under the guise of upholding the law, denying refugees safe haven under the rationalization of national security, taking away health care under the idea that saving money is the number one priority, banning people from other countries uh, uh, under the lie of we're protecting our country, withdrawing aid from the poor because it reduces financial waste, making cuts to education under the platform of budget reallocations, killing our enemies because we're protecting ourselves, allowing misogynistic, sexist, racist, xenophobic rhetoric to permeate a country all because it benefits a political party and it's ultimately for the greater good. This is what it looks like to love power more than people. When Christians love power more than people, in cases like Breonna Taylor, they don't pursue justice, they obstruct it. They selfishly strive to achieve goals that will benefit themselves instead of benefiting others. And sadly, we contradict Jesus every step of the way. When we want power more than we love people, 
We pursue the goals of a political party rather than the goals of Jesus. We promote partisan policy rather than the very kingdom of God. When we love power more than people, you know what happens? Christianity just becomes a campaign strategy. It's not truly a way to live. It's just a way to gain more votes. It's not a transformative faith. It doesn't draw people any closer to God. It doesn't draw us closer to humanity. And in many ways, it pushes people further away because they think if that's the way God functions, sign me up for something else. We have to understand that this quest for power, while it's in our bloodline to do so, the very first, Adam and Eve struggled and failed because they lusted after power against God. That's the first sin in the history of the universe. We all have it in us to want power more than anything else. And something has to change. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. He said, I came and I died on your behalf so that you don't have to succumb to your lust and your quest for power anymore. Your quest for power can rest because I have all of the power here. And the power that I have, I laid down so that you will no longer be a slave to yours. This is what power does. It corrupts. It completely destroys us unless, unless it gets reformatted, unless it gets recalibrated. And now all of a sudden I have the power to love again. I have the power to pursue again. I have the power to protect again. Not the power to persecute, not the power to take advantage, not the power to exploit. You see, ultimately following Jesus, it's not a way that leads to political power or economic security. It's not a way that insulates us from pain or danger, but it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of the cross. It's a way to confront evil and it's a way to confront injustice with suffering and perfect love. This way of reconciliation, this way of bearing witness to a kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus said. Our prayer, our desire, our mandate, even as, as American Christians, should be we want to rise above the fray. We want to rise above the rhetoric. This rhetoric that suggests that the fate of the free world will somehow rest on this person or that person in the election. We know that these things matter. We know that people matter more than anything else. We know that people matter most to Jesus. And so our prayer, our goal is, may our minds be renewed so that we reject whatever our favorite talking head gives us as our greatest value. We, we, we want to be in a place where we can love those who Jesus refers to as the least of these, which means the people who are least protected that we are motivated, even in this election season, to say, I don't want, I don't want to be used as a bargaining chip in order to maintain somebody else's power. The only power that matters to me is the power that's used, the power that's used to care for those who don't have it, the power that's used to protect those that don't have it, the power that's used to make life lived the way it was meant to be lived for those who do not have it. May our hearts be washed and not just our hands. May we not just be so eager to move to the next worship service that we stop worshiping in the ways that we love, care, and even vote in order to love our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, this time that we're in, as we take in yet another tragedy, as we take in another incredible loss, 
as we take in another miscarriage of justice, as many of us feel. Father, we recognize that ultimately you are on the throne and we know that, but God, we don't say that as some form of Christian escapism. We don't just say you're on the throne so that we no longer have to care about it. It's because you're on the throne that our anger burns. It's because you're on the throne that our anger mimics yours. It's because you're on the throne that we know that what we're seeing right now is not the way things are meant to be. And so we lament and we cry out and we protest not just with our prayers, but with our feet and with our actions and with the ways and the ways in which we love and we try to love better. Father, I pray that you will convict us of all the ways that we either are lusting after power or are a part of a mechanism that helps maintain power, a power that is not used to love our neighbor, but used to enlarge self. Father, we pray that uh, all of those who have lost loved ones, like the families of Brianna Taylor, those who are having to deal with not just the loss of their loved one, but a reminder that the system is not working to protect them. The system is not working to bring them justice. The system is not reforming itself so that other people don't suffer in the same way. Father, our hearts break. We don't claim to know all the answers and have all the answers, but we do know when something burdens and grieves your heart. And so God, I pray that our hearts will be grieved. We're not looking for a quick, swift uh, uh, salve to, to cover our hearts and make us feel good again. Father, I pray that you would give us the anger that burns, that makes your nostrils flare. And then I pray that you would give us a hope. You tell us that the only way you say, Jesus, you said that you are the way, the truth and the life. So God, I pray that you would bring your truth to us because the way that we seek after power, it brings nothing but death. So God, give us your kingdom vision. Give us your insight. Give us your heart. Father, help us to love each other the way you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's receive this benediction of God. This, in the midst of everything that we feel, in the midst of every pain that we feel, in the midst of every frustration that we feel, even in ourselves, listen to these words that God gives us, this promise that we get to hold on to. It's only a few things that we can see that are real promises that he says. Here's what he says to us. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.